Word of God is so very, very important. I'm going to ask that you stand again in respect of the Word that is being presented. Are you grateful for this book? Do you know how many people have died so that we might have this book? God has preserved his word. Are you, are you glad for that? He's preserved it. It's still powerful. We can understand it. In fact, let's read it together as you still remain standing. It says in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink sweet wine, send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now you may be seated. You know, when uh, the International Council on Biblical Inerrancy in 1982 did that same processional, by the way, when they did it, it was a long processional with the Bible on a pillow, as it were, and they were accused of, of worshiping the Bible. No, Bible idolatry. No, no, you know what we say? By the way, we don't do that every week. I've only done it, I think, twice in my entire pastorate here. But we have to be reminded the fact that this is the Word of God. All Scripture, and when we say all Scripture, again, the original autographs. And yet, we have a faithful translation And the Word of God can be preached, and the power can be had by each one of us because the Spirit of God works for the Word of God in the children of God. Again, I trust that you find yourself in Nehemiah chapter 8. And again, I know it's warm. Trust there's a breeze. Is there a breeze? Well, it'd be best if the person beside you stopped breathing because that would... I understand. Well, we're going to, I can see we'll probably have to eliminate a little bit. By the way, you know what else we don't have today because of that VBS thing? We don't have a clock. But I have my... (laughs) Nehemiah chapter 8. Last week we looked at the preparation for national renewal. By the way, when I use the word revival... It really is talking about a group of people. Revival is a group. When we talk about spiritual renewal, it's more particular to yourself. Okay, renewal is individual, revival is a group. We're actually going to be looking at revival in the sense of the group, but it's renewal because it's individuals that make up the group. Again, we saw that the people were unified, verse 1. It was, again, the seventh month. The seventh month, which is Tishri, in the Jewish calendar, was the festival month. 
There was three festivals happen on that seventh month. So we immediately say, okay, the walls were built. Now the people need to be built spiritually. The walls physically were rebuilt, but the nation needs to have the same thing on a spiritual level to be rebuilt. And just by chance, nothing happens by chance. It happened to be the walls were done in how many days? 52, and now the seventh month. And all the people came together. They were so excited. And again, the walls were done. But in verse 1, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate and told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses. Do you feel the intensity? That the Lord had commanded. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law. Again, a godly man, Ezra, with a unified people, the Jewish uh, people, both in Jerusalem and those, because at that point in the, in the story, they have not yet moved back to Jerusalem. They were in the outlying areas, but they had all come to Jerusalem as one. And they had a committed desire. They wanted to hear the word. It's like Jeremiah 15, where Jeremiah says, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight, <coughs> the delight of my heart. <coughs> I got your words and it was a joy and a delight. Do you find that in the Word of God? When you open the Word of God, do you find it to be the joy and the delight of your heart? And you say, but why? Because it's the Word of God that is the source of so many things. Again, why read the book? Because it's the source of so much for us. John 17 says, Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. It's the source of truth. It's a source of blessing. Blessed are those who hear the word of God. And what? What's the next two words? And keep it. It's not just a matter of hearing the word. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. It's the source of blessing. It says the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in Ephesians 6.17. It's the, it's the arsenal of, of, the, um, of how God changes our life. It's a source of victory, therefore. 1 Peter 2.2 says it's the source of of growth as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you might grow thereby. We should desire the book because it's the place where we grow. Just like newborn babes. You ever seen newborn babe? You know, newborn babes are, are really not that distracted. We get distracted as we get older. Newborn babes are not distracted. Milk! Milk! And they have a passion. You ever see them? You know, I always look at them like, you're, they, they, they appear like they're going to wilt. No, we should, that's how we, as newborn babes, that's what Peter said, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. That's how we should desire it. And then Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. Where's that found, by the way? The the gospel is found in the word. It's the power. And then, as I mentioned last week, Psalms 119.105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It gives us direction. It gives us guidance. Why do we love the word of God so much? Because it's a source of truth. It's a source of blessing. 
source of victory, source of growth, source of power, source of guidance. I need it. I need it. We need it. And so the people came together as one man and told Ezra, bring the book. We need to hear the book. We need to hear from God. The, last, the next thing we see is the steps to revival. Again, revival would be group. Spiritual renewal would be individual. And it says in verse 6, again, I trust that you have the book. Let me chasten you. If you don't have the Bible, make sure you get it next week, right? We want to bring the Bible. I want you to be able to see it right there. Now, I know some of you are saying, I got the Bible. And you have it on your iPhone. You need the text. I'm not saying paper. just saying you need to see it. By the way, I do, by, by the way why do I like paper? I, I like writing in it. Highlight. By the way, is it wrong to highlight in the Bible? No. Sometimes I hear people say, oh, I don't want to write in the Bible. Oh, no, it's good to write in the Bible. Anyways, Ezra, he, verse 6, he, first of all, this is how the, the revival started. These were the steps, as it were. He prayed. And it says he blessed the Lord. And that is in the intensive. He blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered and said, Amen. In fact, he said, Amen, Amen. So be it. That's, that's where this revival started. Now, it talks about the fact that they read the word, but again, as you see the sequence of the story, what he's doing is he's giving the big picture in the first couple verses, and then he goes back in verses 6 on and says, okay, let me give you the more particulars. So he blesses them, and he blesses them in the intensive. In other words, it's not just a very quick prayer. Ezra, most likely, <coughs> and by the way, you see this in, in chapter 9, this all laid out. He would have been blessing the Lord. Thank you for being the Creator. Thank you for choosing Abraham. Thank you that though we went astray, you forgave. (coughs) That you are patient. That you are loving. That you are kind. That you are forbearing. That though we had gone astray many, many times, you kept bringing us back. You're faithful. We are not. But you've been faithful to your people. Isn't it how it is with our own lives? How many of you are unfaithful? So many times to Jesus Christ, right? Well, we all are, right? That's what sin's all about. And yet he keeps bringing us back. He brings us back. That's if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, right? If you're one of his. And notice what else they did. They lifted up their hands and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. I'm going to encourage you. (coughs) Sometimes pray kneeling. Sometimes pray with your face to the ground. Posture should emphasize attitude. I know we... Can you pray standing up? Yeah, you can pray sitting. But you know, sometimes it's very important to get in a different posture to remind ourselves of what? He's God, we're not. It's very effective. I told you the story. Bill Shade years ago. Well, now probably three, I guess. He encouraged us when we were in Jamaica. He said, no, you know what? Start your day on your knees. I can pray, Bill, standing up or on my... No, start it. And you know what? It's true. It reminds you, he's God, you're not. And I encourage you, start your time in prayer on your knees. So, Ezra prayed. And then look at verse 2. We see again that the people... And again, I'm just trying to fill in all the pieces in a, in a, uh, um, a linear way. 
They had a great respect. It says in verse th- uh, four that they were at- or three they were attentive. That the people stood. That even as Ezra read, they had some on his left and some on his right, and that showed unity. And the leadership was together. <clears throat> you want to have a revival in your own heart? First of all, get in awe of God. That's what Ezra was doing. He had an awe of God. He awakened the awe of God to the people. As Paul Tripp said, the way our heart works is that we all live in awe of something. And what Ezra was doing in in the first part is he was praying, awaken in awe. But the second part of a revival in your own heart and as a group is that we look at the Word of God and you know what? This is precious. This book is so precious that I'm going to spend time in it. This is so precious that I'm going to spend priority time in it. This is so precious that if I have to give something up at the night before to get up to be able to get in the book, I will do that. It's a priority. Verses 2 and 3 really are, are just blaring out. Verse 4, <coughs> verse 5, it's a priority. It's a priority. It's a priority. And then fine, finally, as we saw, see a clear understanding of the word. You'll notice interspersed in uh, verses 1 to 8, the word understanding. It appears six times. Like in the verse... <clears throat> It says they, um, lifting up, let's see, and they help the people understand, verse 7. And you see that same word over and over again. What's the point of getting into the text? To understand it. So they had an awe of God, they had an awe of his book, and they wanted to understand it. In fact, the very part, the very end of verse 8, it says they read from the book, they read it from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense of it. In other words, they gave the understanding of it, and so the people understood the reading. That meant they also applied it. They read it, they understood it, and they applied it. That's what we want to do. That's why we come together. We want to understand the book. By the way, it doesn't matter what it means to you. Sometimes we get into Bible study, small group, and we read a passage. What does it mean to you? You know what? Actually, in the reality, it doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter what it means to you. What does it mean? That's what it matters. What does it mean even if you were never born? That's what matters. So again, we want to get into the book and say, Lord, you wrote it. What does it mean? Not to me. What does it mean? And how does it apply to me? Now, that's the part that we need to ask. Well, let's see what happens next. Verse 9. And Nehemiah was the governor, of, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, This day is holy. We see a fourth aspect of a true revival. The fourth aspect is this, a remorse over sin. Because look at what the people were doing. This day is holy to the Lord, verse 9. Do not mourn or weep. <coughs> they were intense. See, they had just heard the word of God. And you know what their first response was? Grief. Intense Weeping. We have failed. We have done wrong. That was, that's, by the way, one of the things that should happen. We come to the Word of God and there's an intense intensity. God is holy. We're not. We have failed God. That's what the people, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. See, as they heard it being read and explained and applied... It struck a chord in their heart. Uh, We have not kept it. As B.B. Warfield wrote 100 years ago, 
Again, the Bible is the word of God in such a way that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. That's true. And so the Bible spoke. God spoke. They were listening to God. And as they were listening to God, they said, we have not done what God has wanted. Because what they would have done is it started in Genesis, Leviticus, or Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. They probably went right through. And it, was, it struck their heart. We have not been faithful. No wonder we have been you know, uh, sent off to exile and now have come back. And yet God has been faithful. I think of uh, Psalms uh, verse 51. You know, talk about confession. And how should we confess? Look at Psalms 51 for a moment if you can keep your hand in uh, Nehemiah chapter 8. But this is David after Bathsheba. That sin of Bathsheba. And look at what David says in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfastness, <coughs> your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Notice how he, he gets so specific about his sin. He actually identifies his sin by using four Hebrew words. He's, he's not general. He is trying to cover all the bases. He was basically saying this. Lord, I am totally guilty. And so he says in the last part of verse 1, Blot out my transgressions. That's one word. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Notice every time he says my. Cleanse me from my sin. Third one. Then he goes back. For I know my transgressions. I know my sins is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil. That's the fourth word in your sight. These are my sins. And when it's all said and done, even though I, I, <coughs> excuse me, I, I sinned against Bathsheba and I sinned against Uriah, but when it's all said and done, the primary one I sinned against is you. Against you, you only have I sinned. In other words, in comparison to all the people on this earth, it's you that I have sinned against. You know what? You want to have a real revival in your heart. You look at your, your, uh, your thoughts and your actions and your desires and, and go against the Word of God and say, Lord, this is who I really am. Sometimes I think we do not grow. I know this, and it's not our thing. We do not grow like the Lord would want us to grow because we look at our sins and we excuse them. Or we blame shift. Well, if it wasn't the wife that you gave me, I'd be a lot better. No, it's nothing to do with my wife. It has nothing to do with my children. It has nothing to do with my church. It's between God and I. And if you're going to have revival, if the nation was going to have revival, they wept. They heard the word of God and they saw the, the, uh, the, the vast valley between uh, true holiness and where they're at. And so they wept. But, you know, you might say, well, that's kind of curious. Why did they tell them to stop weeping? I mean, isn't that kind of curious? Isn't it good to weep over sin? Isn't it good to mourn over sin? I chewed on that all week. Well, it wasn't so much that it was wrong. That was the first step in this whole thing of revival. But now they had to go on and be obedient to do what God wanted them to do. Because remember, it was the seventh month, the first day. First day. And in the law, there was something supposed to happen on the seventh month in the first day. There was a feast that was supposed to be happening. And that's why he says in the second part of verse 9, this day is holy to the Lord your God. In other words, yes, it's good to remorse over sin. But now you've got to do something beyond just, rem- uh, just being remorseful over your sin. You need to be obedient and do what God says in the law according to the seventh month, the first, first day. And that's the second part, a rejoicing in God's goodness. Because he said, this day is holy to the Lord. This day, this very day, this seventh month, first day, this day is something else is supposed to happen. 
See, and the seventh month in the first day was the beginning of three major feasts for Israel. The first one was the Feast of Trumpets. And then ten days later was the Day of... Can anybody tell me? Atonement. And then five days later, starting the 15th to the 22nd, it was the Feast of what? Booths or Tabernacles. Okay? It was the first day. And the first day, there were some things that were supposed to happen. Their minds were supposed to get focused on what God was doing. There was supposed to be a certain amount of mourning in preparation to the Day of Atonement. But then, they were supposed to feast. It was a time of joy. That's how it was set up in the calendar. The Jews were supposed to come together, and it was the Feast of Trumpets. In fact, it started with the trumpet. Uh, by the way, when they used the shofar, they... Uh, no, 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 no. Uh, this, was, uh, this was just priest. Um, uh, it wasn't in scripture that it had to be this way as much as the priest's uh, tradition. You never use a horn from a cow because it would remind them of the golden calf. It had to be a sheep, a ram, because that reminded them of I, uh, Isaac, remember? Ram caught in the thicket. So again, the, the, the teachers, Ezra, Yes, it's okay, but stop weeping. Because, see, sometimes when we see our sin, we just keep, see, keep weeping over our sin. And there comes a time, by the way, this is very practical. There's a time when you say, you know what? Yes, God has, free, I have repented, God has forgiven me, and now I need to be doing what God wants me to do. You, you see what I'm saying? Sometimes we can get stuck in our sin. Oh, Lord, I cannot believe I did that. <clears throat> Five days later, you're still saying it. Five years later, you're still saying it. <coughs> there's a time for remorse, and there's a time for rejoicing. <clears throat> and it's good to be repentant, and it's good to be remorseful. But Nehemiah and Ezra and the Levites now seek to comfort the people. This day is for joy, not sorrow. It's the day of Rashahana. Again, the, the Feast of Trumpets. This signal the first day of this whole month where, I mean, this was like the, I mean, everyone wanted to get to the seventh month, right? Don't you love to have a great party? I mean, like food every day. Well, there's more than that. But the point is everything was focused on the Lord. Leviticus 23, verse 24, actually, you might want to write that down. It says, in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest. See, that's the first thing. It's, it's literally Sabbath. Don't work. Don't work other than just the very minimal. By the way, if you had a sheep and it had to be fed, you could do that on the Sabbath, but you couldn't do other work. It was a day of rest. It was a day of rest. A memorial. I'm just reading Leviticus 23, 24. A memorial, a remembrance. Proclaimed with a blast of trumpets. A holy convocation. That means it's about everybody. Assembly. And they would, eh, it didn't sound like that, but you get the point. Call everybody together. This is the day of, this is, this is the day of rejoicing. By the way, there was going to be a day when their sin was totally understood. That was just ten days later, day of atonement. When for one moment of time, everything was covered in the nation of Israel. But for now, Remember God's goodness. I think of Exodus 34. 
This is when Moses, after having smashed the first set of tablets, had the second set in his hands. He was going up to Mount Sinai before the Lord. And in Exodus 34, verse 6, it says this, The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed. This is what God said. The Lord, the Lord, twice, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. See, when we remorse over our sin because we see the holiness of God, that's good. That's very good. In fact, in our society that's so tolerant, we need to discipline our mind and say, Lord, how have we offended you? Help us to be a repentant people, not to be blame-shifting. We need to have remorse. For many of us, we need to have even more intense understanding of how we go away from God's plan in our life. But then there comes a time when you recognize that and repent. If we confess our sins, what? He is faithful and just to what? Forgive, to cleanse. And at that point, by the way, it's interesting, even in the text in 1 John, talking about he's our advocate. See, we need to then spring right into the goodness of God. And remember those characteristics as God had told to, uh, to Moses. Lord means Jehovah. He said it twice. Jehovah is what? Covenant-keeping God. We serve the covenant-keeping God. We serve the God of truth. We serve the God who, when he says, if you receive my son for forgiveness of sin, you will be one of my children. You will be forgiven. We bank on that, right? I mean, that's what our hope is in. Our belief is in the fact we serve a true God. He speaks truth. We serve a God, look at these, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, forgiving transgressions, forgiving sins. He, he goes to the forgiveness and says, listen, transgressions, iniquity, sin, you can be forgiven. That's the Old Testament. That's an Old Testament principle that's also... Obviously true in the New Testament. We need to rejoice in God. That's what this first day was all about. Yes, remorse, but now rejoice. Your life will not be full if all you do is just look at the sin. You have got to see the greatness of God, right? Our God is so great. I mean, how many of us, our lives would be a total disaster but God. But God. So they encouraged him. Verse 10, then he said to them, go your way, eat This is what they command them to do. Eat the fat. Drink the sweet wine. Send portions to anyone. By the way, it's not just about yourself. Send portions to anyone who has nothing. When you're walking with God, you know what? One of the things that's going to happen in your life, you're going to be caring about other people. They even comfort the people and say, listen, yes, we want you to eat and drink, but we want you to send portions to others who may not have been prepared, may not have had enough. By the way, put this in the context. They had just come from the exile. Many of them had just been in Jerusalem for less than 60 days. They had gone through this hard time of rebuilding the walls with all the frustrations of Sanballat and Tobiah. <clears throat> now they're going right into a feast time, and a lot of them had nothing. They didn't have anything. They brought a, Everything they had was brought from, as an exile from Persia to Israel. And now everyone's supposed to be feasting, and that's why they say, make sure you, make sure you give... Make sure you give. It's not just about you. It's about your brother Jew, right? We need to be the same way, right? 
It's not just about us. It's not just about us enjoying what we have. What we have is God's, and if my brother needs it, I need to be willing to release it. So he says, make sure you send portions. Look at verse 11. So the, oh, wait, let's get to the last part of verse 10. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. I wish they'd make a song about that sometime. <laughs> By the way, that is the theme to the end of the book, or the end of the chapter, the joy. I hope I get to there tonight. The joy, the joy, you're going to see the joy three, uh, two other times. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. And so they read, verse 11, So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. They have trumpets. Don't be grieved. See, and they keep going back. This is holy. Don't be grieved. Don't be grieved. You don't serve the gods of the Canaanites and the Hittites. They're angry gods. They want you to sacrifice their children to them. No, no, you, so, you serve, and I want you to catch this, you serve a joyful God. I think, forget, I think we forget that we, yes, is our God angry? Yes, at sinners. Is our God holy? He's the other. That's what holy means. White hot holiness. But our God is a joyful God. I know that for an absolute fact because Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Love, joy. He's a joyful God. So he says, be, you know, be joyful, verse 12, and all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions. They were obedient and to make... Now notice, they add something. The joy of the Lord is your strength in verse 10. Now it says, they made great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. There again, they understood. The key to preaching, the key to teaching, the key to getting in the word of God is not just to hear it, not just to understand it, but then how does it apply? And it applied. Because what did they do? Oh, we're going to eat, we're going to drink, we're going to send portions. We are joyful. No, not just joy, great rejoicing. Because when you connect with a joyful God, your heart should be joyful. Would you say that's correct? Would you say that's true? Sounds kind of quiet. Has anyone fainted? No. Um, when you connect with a joyful God, should your heart be joyful? Yes. Great. So that's the second time we see joy. It's great rejoicing. Now let's look at the last one. Now we see an obedience to God's word. Now you say, well, haven't we been seeing that? Yes. But, but I'm, I'm interested in this particular one and named it that way because of this. At first it was all the people. It was the first day. Now it's the second day. And now they find out about something else they're supposed to be doing. Now again, on the calendar, seventh month, first day, Feast of Trumpets. Nine days later to the tenth day, Day of Atonement. But after that, five days later, they're supposed to be in the Feast of Booths. This is why I've named this uh, an obedience to God's word. You could say it this way, a continued Maybe you want to write that word in. Continued obedience. Have you ever found yourself getting real excited about God's word? Yes, Lord, I'm going to serve you the rest of my life. Check in two weeks later, falling off the ship again. When it comes to these people, the first day, the whole crowd's there. Now, a lot of them go back home. I mean, they're doing the feast. But then in uh, the second day, which is verse 13, on the second day, the heads of the fathers... (coughs) <coughs> houses of all the people, now just the heads. See, they come together, just the heads, just the leaders, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests, okay, they're leaders, Levites, 
they're the uh, interpreters, they're the ones explaining, came together to Ezra the scribe. Now, now it's just the leaders coming back the second day. In order to what? Study the words of the law. I'm thirsty. I'm hungry. Now, you don't understand, Pastor. I come to Sunday morning service. You give me enough for the week, in fact, enough for the month. I hope you never... No, no, I'm hungry. Got to get back in the book. Daily. Now what's going to happen, though, is they're going to get it and then go back and teach it to the people. That's the idea. And so they came together. By the way, it's interesting. They came to Ezra to study. Because in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, it says this, and we read it last week. It's worth repeating. For Ezra set his, his heart to study the law and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. <coughs> he studied the law to live the law, to teach the law. That's how it has to always be. In other words, it's not enough just to study. It's you study it to do it. Have you ever found yourself studying it just to know it? No, no, you study it to do it. And then that doesn't even stop there. You study to do it so that you might teach it to someone else. You pass the baton. It's just very interesting, that one key verse, Ezra 7.10. So, so, they find out something in verse 14. They found, in written, uh, found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths. See, they're reading along, probably got to Leviticus, literally 23, that's where you find it. They hadn't gotten up to that point as far as they're reading, and they found out, wait, Israel's supposed to be dwelling in booths. You know, do you ever go to the Bible and it's like, wow, wait, I'm not doing that. That's how they are. I'm not doing that. Dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. They're in the seventh month. And if you want to go there later, um, it's a Le- Leviticus 23, verses 39 to 44. But there it says this. Just let me give you the piece, the first piece. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, pr- gathered in the produce, hmm, they've gone through a long spring and summer, and now they're gathering in the produce. The crops are coming in. Something's supposed to happen. You shall celebrate the feast of the Lord seven days. You're going to have... Now, you had a feast on the first day. They just went through the Day of Atonement, or will, but they're on the first day. But, they say, but now God, is in his word, says, you're going to have a feast for seven days. And that's why the Jews called it the feast. Quote, unquote. The feast. See, but you would say, well, they had seven feasts. They did. They had three in the spring, uh, one in the summer, three in the fall. But what do you mean this? Hey, this is seven days. This is the feast. I mean, this is the quintessential feast, not party. Well, no, they did have food, though. Lots of food. Why? Look at verse, uh, well, you're not even there, but in verse 40 of Leviticus uh, 23, verse 40. And you shall take on the first day of the fruit, uh, uh, fruit of the splendid trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord. That's the key right there. When you go through this uh, time of uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, you shall rejoice before the Lord. You get the picture? They were crying and moaning and mourning and grieving. And yes, you sinned, but God is a God God of forgiveness. And in the natural Jewish calendar, they would come to the Day of Atonement where all sins were covered. And they went right in within a couple days, few days, 
to a time of total rejoicing. Why? Because our God is faithful. He has covered our sin. We are in relationship with Him. And you know what? He's the Lord. He's Jehovah. He's the covenant-keeping God. Does that cause great rejoicing in our heart? Knowing that no matter what happens to me on this earth, I am secure in His love. So that's the feast. And we have a celebration. Seven days. By the way, this feast did three things to the Jews. It should have done three things. First of all, they should have looked back. There's, by the way, this is this. Looking back, looking around, and looking forward. They, first of all, were supposed to look back and remember something very specific. That when they faltered and failed and had to wander for 40 years in, i.e., booths, that God was faithful the whole time. That's what the first thing about the Feast of the Booth. To remember what God had done to their forefathers when they were disobedient and wandering in the wilderness. And that's what the booths were supposed to remind them of, just temporary shelter. Because if you ever looked at the uh, wanderings, you know, they would stay here for a month or two months or even a year, and then they'd pick up and it was just a temporary shelter, and then they'd have to set up their tents here and set up their tents there. And this whole feast time was saying, you know what, God, you are so faithful. The second thing is, right now, the crops were coming in. And they were rejoicing in the fact that they had had crops that were coming in. By the way, this first time, they were going to have to depend on whose crops. The Jews that had already come with Zerubbabel and Ezra. In other words, there was going to have to be a lot of sharing this first year. But the Feast of Tabernacles was supposed to remind them, listen, God is faithful to provide today. It's kind of like our Thanksgiving. You want to think of it in that sense. And yet, instead of one day, it was seven. God is faithful today. But the other thing is the Feast of Tabernacles was also an occasion of looking ahead to the glorious kingdom when finally God would rescue his nation. They would return to him. They would be saved like Romans 9 talks about. Do you know this? That in the millennial kingdom, we will also... Uh, celebrate in the Feast of Booths. It's found in uh, Zechariah chapter 14. Don't turn there now, but if, I think it's 14 through 16. It talks about those in the millennial kingdom will celebrate the Feast of Booths. This is very important even for us because what does it do? It again reminds us and will remind us then and reminded the Jews what? God is faithful to his people. <clears throat> God chose Abraham and through all of them going here and, and you know, into Egypt and then brought him out and wandering and all that and then being sent off into Babylon and Persia. Finally, in the, in the uh, tribulation, God will finally rescue his people. They will finally look to him as the Savior. And for a thousand years, even we will celebrate in the Feast of Booths because God is faithful. So we see celebration, and then look at verse 15, and, they, and, and that they should proclaim it and publish it. In other words, these are the leaders. They've got to get it out to the people. Hey, wait a second. We're on the first day. In less than two weeks, 15th, we got to, and we're going to have to celebrate this. And so verse 15 says, second power, go out to the hills and bring in the branches. Do we have those pictures? I just thought this is what a booth looks like. Well, that's not what it looks like. <laughs> booth hello they're really nice pictures okay uh, yeah, think of a booth it's not 
That's like a booth right there. When, we, when I went to Israel, it must have been right after this because there was all these booths in the, uh, all over Jerusalem. But that's, you know, just very, very rustic. Could you give me another one? Or like that. You can't really see it, but you can tell how rustic it is. Poles, leaves. That's all. Because it's supposed to remind you they were wandering around. They didn't have, they were unsettled. Not this. <laughs> this, is a, this is a woman's touch. It's not that one. I gave it to you what you don't want to have. Next one. Or that. Too nice. Rustic. First two. Okay, you got it. Make bulls. Well, you can see when they say in verse 15. Bring in branches of olive and wild olive, myrtle, palm. Okay. The point is you make booths. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves. Booths for themselves. Very rustic. And then finally, verse uh, 17, consecration. And all the assembly of those who had returned from captivity made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Joshua, Joshua, it's Joshua the son of Nun, Joshua chapter 1. To the, days, to the day the people of Israel had, had not done so. Oh, wait a second. Wait, that's real important. Wait, you mean from the days of Joshua to this point, a thousand years later, they had not celebrated the, the Feast of Booths? Feast of Tabernacles? No, that's not exactly what he's saying there. Because we find in certain part, portions of Scripture, such as uh, 2 Corinthians 8, about King Solomon's day and the Babylonian exiles in Ezra 3 that they had. But there's something special about it. Well, before I get there, let me just wrap up with three thoughts, one of which is a special thing. Notice that in your text, the crescendo of joy, the joy of the Lord is your strength, verse 10. They celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, and in the end of verse uh, 15, or 12, it says they were greatly rejoicing. But then look at verse 19. Not just greatly rejoicing, but the, excuse me, 17. The end of verse 17, and there was very great rejoicing. Joy of the Lord is your strength. Greatly rejoicing. Very great rejoicing. I think you can draw a couple things. One, we serve a joyful God. I said it earlier, but I want you to get that in your mind. We serve a joyful God. All the things that he does in his people. And, you know, if you want to look at your kids, one of the things I look for in my own children, that should be a reflection of me, and not always is it there. You know what? If I'm really doing the right job, shouldn't they be joyful? I mean, I'm looking at them, and if they're just like, I hate life, and I don't... Oh, I say, okay, I can't control that, but you know what? That is a reflection of me, right? We are a reflection of God, and if he is a joyful God, we should be joyful. That's really the second point. If he is a joyful God, and we know he is, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, we should be a joyful and obedient people. And they were. Look at the middle part of 17. They made booths and lived in them. See, they were obedient. They were joyful. We know that because it says very great rejoicing. That little piece, though, the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord. You know what it's not saying is this. The joy of my health is my strength. It's not saying that the joy of my wealth is my strength. The joy of my self-esteem, the joy of my relationships and friendships is my strength. The joy of the fact that people respect me, that people love me, that I'm secure is my strength. That's not what he's saying. 
The joy of my abilities, my intellect, that I'm winning is my strength. That's not what he's saying. No, no. The, the joy of the Lord. God, you're faithful. You're gracious. You're holy. You love me. I'm in, in Christ. That's my strength. That's what your strength should be. And by the way, if you get those other idols, he's going to try to do this. He's going to break them from you. Because the joy of the Lord needs to be our strength. Not some other substitute. That word joy in the New Testament means the feeling of happiness that is based on a spiritual reality. And that reality is who God is and what he is doing in our life. That's our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It's divinely produced. And finally, the joy of the Lord does something else. It produces enthusiastic service. Enthusiastic. See, you see, you see the flow here. <coughs> bring me the book. Or they were saying, bring us the book. Ezra comes out, reads the book. Oh, don't mourn. Rejoice. It's the Feast of Trumpets, first day. They do it. Oh, second day. The heads. Oh, this other feast is coming. You know what they do? They're enthusiastic about... Uh, of... Uh, of uh, of participating in that. Now, what does it mean that since the days of Joshua? Uh, Warren Wearsby writes this, Nehemiah 8.17 does not teach that the nation had ignored the Feast of Tabernacle since the days of Joshua. Again, we know that in the Babylonian exile and uh, during Solomon's day, they celebrated. It was not the fact of the celebration that was so special, but the way they celebrated, for it appears that everybody participated enthusiastically. Because every family made a booth, some of the people had to move from the house into the streets and the squares. By the way, it was somewhat inconvenient. You know, we all like camping. You like camping? How about seven days with everyone else there and the inconvenience of it all? But no, your eyes should be on the Lord. They had given, in previous years, token acknowledgement of the feast. But now, they all came together as one nation. And they joyfully celebrated what God had commanded them to do. And that's what I mean by enthusiastic service. This was the first time for a thousand years that all the people didn't just in a token way say, okay, the feast, you know, we'll do something really cool, maybe sit out there a couple nights. The whole congregation, the whole group of Israelites from around Jerusalem and outer way, they all came to Jerusalem. They all enthusiastically served. They all set up their booths, and they were in there the whole time for seven days. And the very end of verse 17 says, and there was great rejoicing. They were like this. Bummer. Why did God have to do seven days? Why can't we just do it three days? Because when you're walking with the Lord and you have the joy of the Lord as your strength, you know what you want to do? You want to enthusiastically serve him. Are you enthusiastically serving him today? I trust you are. Let me close with this. Colossians 3, 16. There's a New Testament passage that talks about enthusiasm. It says this, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in you richly. But then he says this, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in what? In the name of the Lord Jesus. In other words, do it for him. Do it for him. Anything you do, <coughs> verse 17, do it for him, giving thanks to God, the Father, through him. You know, but then he says, he, he almost like switches gears. 
And now he talks about wives, submit to your own husbands as fitting in the Lord. So he says something about the wives. And husband, love your wives. Don't be bitter, harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything, for this pleases the Lord. And he goes to the slaves, obey in everything. Those who are earthly masters, what? Not as man pleasers, but fearing the Lord. And then he comes back to this the subject of whatever you do, do it heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And I, and I sat back this week and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. Let, your, let the Word of God dwell in you richly. Serve Him. And then he puts in all these responsibilities, relationships that we have. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, masters and slaves. And he says, you know what? If you really want to enthusiastically serve me, do it first of all right in your home. Oh yeah, Lord, I'll serve you as an Awana, not Awana leader, what am I saying? Olympian leader. Boy, that was a... Man, I'm going to serve you in preaching, Lord. I'm going to serve you at the VBS, Lord. I will... He says, you know what? Start enthusiastically serving me right where you're at in your home. And then he closes by saying, and whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do it for me. The Israelites heard the law, they repented, and they were joyful. No, not just joyful. They were greatly rejoicing. No, 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 not just greatly rejoicing. They were very great rejoicing. And when the joy of the Lord is your strength, that's what will happen. Lord, I am just so thankful to be part of your family. Lord, I just want to serve you. No, I just, I want to serve you. I want to just enthusiastically serve you. That's how it should be. And you, that's what you need to shoot for. Not kids, you know, teens, oh, i got to obey my parents. Man, why do I have to love her? Why do I have to submit to him? Oh, this, it's so hot. Why doesn't he just be quiet and let us go? <laughs> Let's stand as we close. Do we have a, do we have a, a worship song? We're a little bit disheveled right here. I would encourage you to sing out wholeheartedly for the Lord.